what's up? You listen to another episode of Bootleg Like Jazz. I'm your host, Q, uh, a.k.a. Terrell Wayne. And today's episode, we're going to talk to Roberto Carlos Garcia. He's a Dominican um, American uh, writer, poet, uh, activist, um, all around great guy. Uh, he has a new book called, out, uh, called Black Maybe, an Afro Lyric. And I swear to you, um, it was given to me as a gift and I couldn't put it down for the first month, which is why I got him on a podcast. Um, and it's been in my bag the moment I finished it. There's so much to it. You should go buy it. Um, we'll get into where you can buy his book, where you can find him online. Um, after that, we're also going to talk a little bit about uh, a little bit more about Haiti, about the Dominican Republic. You know, a lot of people are like, yo, you know, when I tell them about my podcast, they're like, yo, man, am I going to learn something? And I'm like, yeah, you're going to learn something. So, you know, I'm going to get a little nerdy and give you a little info about those things. Um, and then also I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, a little bit more about my experiences living in France. So this is going to be a great episode. Uh, don't miss out. Uh, like, subscribe, follow, leave a comment. Tell me what you think. Um, also, I'm on YouTube. So go check out my videos. Uh, it's the app. Uh, I'm sorry. It's Bootleg Like Jazz. Uh, on YouTube and I have some videos up about the Afro Latin Fest and got some great things in the in the pipeline that's coming up so you don't want to miss it. <clears throat> What's up? My name is Roberto Carlos Garcia. I'm a poet and writer. I was born and raised in New York City, and in the latter half of my life, uh, young life, I lived in New Jersey. My both my parents, my grandparents, and way way back, all from Dominican Republic. They, um, my grandmother immigrated to the United States in the '60s. You know, and brought the whole fam over. Um, but yeah, they're from Dominican Republic. Um, but the matriarch, you know, of the family, she was well, this lady from Spain, and the patriarch was a Haitian Dominican gentleman. So that's my background. Uh, Get Fresh Books. So, what is Get Fresh Books? I started Get Fresh Books LLC. It's a poetry publishing press. It's a small press. Um. You know, we only publish poetry right now. We don't run contests. We don't have contest fees. You know, we ask that people who are going to submit buy a copy of the book. That would be great. A copy of, you know, one of our published books, excuse me. That would be great in order to support the press. But we don't charge submission fees. Um, I started Get Fresh Books um, with a lot of encouragement from my, you know, my dear, dear family from graduate school, from the MFA uh, graduate school. We just, you know, we wanted to see a different kind of publishing in the publishing world. Um, you know, I, I said this before, I said it again, you know, not to knock anybody's hustle, but number one, you know, we didn't want to do uh, submission fees because those add up and then you get a form letter and it's like, peace out you know we didn't want to do that um and we wanted to try to respond to folks as many folks as we can you know 
Uh, we're a small, very small organization. Um, and yeah, and so we just, you know, be the change, right? So we decided to be the change. And, and uh, you know, I started this press, the love and support of my community. And we've been going strong for about three years now. So, um, you know, that's great. If you think you got that manuscript, please submit. You know, if you'd like to donate to keep small presses alive, please donate. Um, again, it's getfreshbooksllc.com. Um, what do I have coming up? Let's see. June 7th, I'm reading with Willie Perdomo at the Caribbean Cultural Center in Harlem, New York. That's going to be a blast, man. Willie's been one of my poetic idols. If you don't know Willie Perdomo's poetry, get out from under that rock and <laughs> check it out. Um, you know, Willie's just a legend, man. He's a legend, and his poetry is amazing, and it's an honor, uh, you know, to read with him. Um, so that's coming up. Uh, I'll also be reading in Brooklyn. Um, I'll be reading in Brooklyn in June also at the... I'm trying to remember the name of the location. It's with a W... But I'm I'm hard pressed to bear with me while I while I pull it up because I think it's the Week Weekway Cultural Center in Brooklyn. It's the Weeksville Weeksville uh, Cultural Center in Brooklyn, New York. That's where I'll be uh, at the end of June. Sorry about that. That's where I'll be. Uh, if you go to my website, robertocarlosgarcia.com, you can learn you know, a little bit more about me. You can, uh, you'll find links to all my published work, you know, um, and what shows and readings I'll be doing. Also, if you just follow me on social media, you'll see what I got going on Instagram or Twitter. Excuse me. Um, so, yeah, I'm usually, you know, I'm usually doing at least one or two readings a month. You know, sometimes I, I like to hibernate, too, and hide out. But I'm usually doing about, you know, one or two readings a month. So, you know, come and find me. Check it out. Check me out, you know. Uh, <clears throat> right now, I'd like to read this poem for you. It is one of the first poems in the book. And it's called Mama Anna's Flat Nose. Mama Anna's Flat Nose. Mama. If we are part Spanish gypsy, part Taino Indian, why is your nose flat like Celia Cruz? Why is your hair deep waves like Caribbean sea, skin never before seen cinnamon? Why do I look like black Chinaman? Mama Pastora was Castilian gypsy, hair yellow like piss from a rum hangover, eyes blue like gunpowder flashing, Skin white like bones in the grave. Papa Africa, Jose Maria, had hair tight as hide stretched over a drum. Lips full like the bellies of slave ships. Skin black like bones in the grave. My flat nose comes from deep inside them. Our skin, nose, and hair, an antenna to both ancestors beyond the grave. We're not black, we're tan. Now, callate. So uh, this poem was <clears throat> inspired um, by 
one the fact that in in you know my family as it is in a lot of Dominican culture, you know, no one wants to admit to or own up to their Africanness or their African features, you know, or in Americas we would say their blackness. Right? Everybody wants to be Indian or something else, but nobody wants to be black. So the speaker in this poem is questioning, you know, his moms or grandmom or whatever as to come on, if this is true and if that is true, why this, you know? And so, you know, she's kind of telling him the truth, but then pivoting at the end. And so she's, you know, she's demonstrating her denial while at the same time recognizing that she knows she just chooses not to accept it, you know. Um, my book is called, my second book is called Black Maybe an Afro Lyric. And that name, that title, Black Maybe, um, you know, that maybe casts doubt, right? That maybe um, is kind of what's, what's at the heart of so much of the African diaspora. Um, there's this maybe attached to everything, you know? It's funny because when we think about all the nations that sprung up, you know, um, you know, they were colonies at one point, and then through the slave trade, they became, you know, largely, you know, Afro-diasporic nations or, or colonies. And then when they rose up and got their independence, you know, bim boom, all of a sudden you got all these small black nations everywhere. And even though they're not really free, you know, they are, um, you know, still held hostage by, you know, IMF and the World Bank. They're still colonies in a sense, um, and tourism, right? But there's all these identities now, you know? There's like Jamaicans, Trinidadians, Tobagoans, um, Dominicans, Cubans, Puerto Ricans, you know, on and on it goes, you know, Bayesians and this and that. And there are all these identities that are very independent of the different um, African nations, the continent of Africa, right? And so while they are black nations, you know, you're going to get a different story probably from every, you know, every person you ask walking down that street. They still hang on to, you know, in large part, not, you know, obviously 100%, but in large part to these colonial attitudes and mindsets. And so since the book is exploring the Afro-diasporic experience, you know, particularly from the experience, you know, of a young Dominican-American, obviously, or a Dominican-American protagonist, um, there's still enough in there of the Afro-diasporic experience that says, this is how we do each other, you know? This is how we do each other from black person to black person. This is how we do each other when we think because we speak Spanish, we're automatically not black, or because we speak Creole or Patois, or, or because I'm black from America, you know, I'm really black and you're not because you're black from the Caribbean. Like, you know, all of those different scenarios. So uh, Black Maybe, an Afro lyric, is an exploration of all of that. As well. I deliberately wanted to call it an Afro lyric because um, it's for us Afro-diasporic people. It's for us to explore and understand and try to reckon with what it is um, 
you know, that we need to do. Like, we don't all got, it was, you know, the whole skin folk and kin folk. Um, we're all different, you know, what, what we have all developed into, uh, what we've matured into, you know, we're different. We're no longer, you know, from, we don't no longer have the same identities that we did, that our West African ancestors had, but we are linked via this beautiful continent of Africa. And so we need to come to terms with that, I think, so that we can unite in some form or fashion and, and, and get some economic and political power to stop being exploited. You know, so hopefully the book just starts those conversations, you know. It's not political, like, in that sense where those conversations are necessarily happening, but the conversations of how we do each other in our one-to-ones, in our group environments, that that's a part of that. And I think that um, those conversations need to take place so that we can then take another step towards getting our hands in that that power that we need to just stop being exploited, uh, you know, at every corner of this earth, we as black people are exploited and we need to, we need to get a handle on that, um, and end it and end it, you know, I think it's important. Uh, Casta, you said you want to know more about the Casta. So the Casta, uh, firstly, it's, translated you know into english as the caste as in caste system we've seen different caste systems you know the indian caste from india caste system comes to mind you know where you have your lowly untouchables who you know do the dirty work mostly your servants you know dealing with waste and things like that you know and they're forever frowned upon or, or looked upon the caste system was the same um here in america our caste system was you know African slaves, poor whites, you know, and white masters, right? Um, that caste system is still largely, you know, in effect right now, you know? Yeah, there are still a lot of white masters, but there are also a lot of other folks who have become masters as well. And while whiteness is still largely power via skin, it's also a kind of state of mind for a lot of people too. But anyway, so... Um, so casta means caste, and in the in the sense of the book, the cover for the book is a casta painting, and that is a painting that depicted or paintings that depicted what the children of interracial or interethnic marriages or just you know sex or whatever um, would be called, what their race would be. And a lot of those names are zoological terms, you know, so you know, black and white, mulatto, you know, mulatto means mule. So these are not flattering terms. There's a lot of debate also about these paintings as to whether they are, um, you know, depictions of just how great everything was uh, in the colonies and look, everyone got along and intermingled and married and yada, yada, yada to you know here's a kind of roadmap to try to work your way back to whiteness or that european purity um and there's all kinds of these different caste systems there are caste systems for the different um you know ethnicities jews were considered good you know good jewelers good accountants and 
and good keepers of information and you know brown and black folk indigenous folk and african folk and uh you know a lot of poor um a lot of you know poor peasants you know be they european or whatever were considered good laborers um and and certain stock were good rulers and leaders and so this kept you know monarchies intact this kept um just abusive regimes and power these different castes and so today we kind of live in a in a in a caste society within us within you know within black folks we we use colorism as our caste system you know light light is all right you know <laughs> light skin is in you know um the black of the berry, the sweet of the juice, you know, that's a beautiful one. And we know that obviously, you know, people of darker complexions have always kind of been the target and exploited. Um, but yeah, that's that's what's kind of behind this caste system, right? It's just almost like a taxonomy. It's a way to, to label and name and keep track of. Um, yeah, that's what that's about. So I'll, I'll read the poem. I don't know you, you said you wanted me to read the poem. Um, and so, in this poem, also it, it it takes language directly from you know each era. So it takes language um, that's associated with the paintings themselves, and with you know the racial terminology, um, be they epithets or just you know no nomenclature of each era. So we'll start casta. Conquistador, Espanol, Peninsular, Europeo, Colonized, Amerindian, Indio, Americano, Stolen, Slave, Negro, Africano, Espanol, Colony, Criollo, Colonial, Indio, Espanol, Mestizo, Rape, Espanol, Mestizo, Castizo, Pass, Espanol, Mafa, Colony, slavery, Africano, Espanol, mulato, rape, Espanol, mulato, morisco, pass, and it goes on. Espanol, morisco, chino, chino y indio, salta atrás, salta atrás y mulato, lobo, lobo y chino, Jíbaro, jíbaro y mulato, albarazado, albarazado y negro, cambujo, cambujo y indio, zambaigo, zambaigo y lobo, calpa mulato, calpa mulato y cambujo, tente en el aire, tente en el aire y mulato, no te entiendo, no te entiendo, indio, torna atrás. And it goes on. Terceron, one-third Negro. Quadroon, one-quarter Negro. Quinteroon, one-fifth Negro. Hexadecaroon, one-sixth Negro. Octoroon, one-eighth Negro. Musty, one-eighth Negro. Mustafino, one-sixteenth Negro. Griff, three-quarters Negro. Cafuso, three-quarters Negro. And it goes on. Trigueño, trigueñito, cimarrón, rojizo, moreno, 
morenito, quemao, quemaito, prieto, indio, indiecito, creole, claro, clarito, blanco, oscuro, oscurito, negro, fair, light skin, high yellow, red bone, olive, mid-tone, brown, dark brown, black, and it goes on. White, not Hispanic Latino, black, not Hispanic Latino, Native American, white, Hispanic Latino, black, Hispanic Latino, Asian, not Hispanic Latino, Asian, Hispanic Latino, two or more races, not Hispanic Latino. So the use of the fractions here, where it says quadroon and quinteroon and hexadecaroon, these were terms um, that were used against mixed-race folks to determine how much African blood they had in them, the one-drop rule, that notion that no matter how far way back or, um, you know, how hidden that African relative is in your timeline, if there was any African in your family pool, your gene pool, you know, you were black, that's it. A lot of legislation was written and a lot of rights were restricted based on how much black you had in you, hence the fractions. So, you know, these terms, quadroon, octoroon, terceroon, they're all kind of, uh, tend to be mathematical languages, right? Um, or incorporate some sort of terceroon, one-third, right? Um, this is the percentage of black that you are. Uh, something I learned is that indigenous people have their blood measured or quantified to demonstrate how native or indigenous they are. And depending on how native or indigenous they are, this ties into a lot of the different treaties that have been agreed to with natives and the U.S. government and benefits and things like that. Um, I mean, and it's just disgusting, right? It's just disgusting and terrible. Um, so I wanted to find a way to just express, you know, how long we have been treated like animals in a zoo as opposed to human beings. How long we have been treated um, like a freak show or like a commodity. We are a commodity, right? Um, you know, the world still has not stopped finding ways to make money off of black and brown people, and in particular, the suffering of black and brown people. And so, you know, Casta is just taking a look at all these, these different naming conventions and how we have internalized them also. You hear them growing up, you know, as a kid, I would hear the conversations about who's light skin, who's mid-tone, who's, you know, black, who's dark in English and in Spanish, you know, from, you know, Afro-Latinos and Afro-Americans and Afro-Caribbeans, you know, and how about you're too dark, you're never going to find this somebody to be with because you're too black, and, you know, you're not really black because you're too light, look at you, blah, 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 you know, the whole, the whole thing, so, anyway, it's, it's a look at that, right, it's a look at that, you know, um, Latin America was being exploited 
just like, you know, North America. In Central and South America, you know, during slavery in the U.S., indigenous people and, you know, the very large populations of, you know, Africans who were there were being exploited. Um, even though slavery may have ended in Central and South America before it ended in the U.S., those same tactics were being used to exploit um, those folks for labor. Their lands were being taken. Um, so a lot of the indigenous people and, you know, the Africans who had remained and who were clearly now part of the structure. They were, you know, Colombians, they were Mexicans, they were Guatemalans, they were, you know, Ecuadorians, even though they may not have been treated that way um, on the books, you know, there were no laws protecting them, but um, they were. And so they were being exploited by, you know, the, the remnants of that colonial era, those people in power. And corporations from the United States were also exploiting the land, not just in South and Central America, in particular, the United Fruit Company you know, mining companies, they were all over South Central America, the Caribbean, just exploiting the the agriculture for fruit and vegetables, um, taking the land, you know, bribing politicians, controlling governments, the U.S. with their, their proxy wars and their assassinations and their interference. Um, and then, you know, a lot of these countries began offering... European families huge tracts of land to move to South and Central America to create a more European based gene pool to begin to, you know, whiteify or Europeanize South and Central America and parts of the Caribbean. You know, the Caribbean, um, the United States, and, you know, they installed dictators all over, you know, the Dominican Republic's own. Trujillo was installed by the United States government. Um, he was groomed early on in the 20s to take over. And so the U.S. was, you know, destabilizing. Indigenous and African people were being treated horribly. Um, they were stealing land and resources. The same things they're doing now, basically. And so, you know, while slaves taken from Africa and brought to the United States were a small number and they were because the majority of African slaves went to South and Central America and the Caribbean the majority the overwhelming majority um, those that came to the US were a, were a small uh, number um, but they were here suffering through chattel slavery one of the cruelest and most horrific forms of slavery um, different dynamics were at work in South and Central America. I mean, slavery is slavery, right? Being chained and whipped and forced to work is is bad, period. But different dynamics began to spring up that created different kinds of false consciousnesses where, you know, people stopped believing they were Negro or African or didn't want to believe that any longer and wanted to believe they were something else. Um... So it's a smorgasbord of things. I've recently been reading uh, Dr. Vanessa K. Valdez's book on uh, Dr. Arturo Schomburg, right? From the, the, the man whom the Schomburg Library, right, um, is named after. 
and his journey, you know, from Puerto Rico to the United States, you know, as an Afro-Caribbean, as a black Puerto Rican, his experiences in the U.S. and, and you know, what was going on in Puerto Rico at that time. Um, you know, there's a lot. There's a lot to get to, a lot of reading out there. So that's just some of what was happening, you know. Just some of what was happening. Um, I'll read else I'll read so I'll read elegy written for the n-word on behalf of the word nigga by a nigga and I think you get the gist once I read it but let's go through it it's in three parts elegy written for the n-word on behalf of the word nigger, by a nigger. It's cool, man. Chill. One. Fresh off the boat, fresh off the plane, fresh off the islands in the hurricane rains. Just got to the city and already saying, My nigga, my nigga, what's good, my nigga? Yeah, yeah, man, that's my nigga. I be that nigga, yeah. Got down with the hustles, got down with the raps. Got a pair of Tims and a Yankees baseball cap. And you slap nigga at the end of all your sentences and don't understand the consequences. Two. This poem consists of a conversation between three dudes, X, Y, and Z. X. What's up, my nigga? How you, man? Y. Yo, man. Z. Oh, shit. Here we go. X. What? Y. Look, man. Don't call me nigga no more. X. What you talking about, man? Z. Told you. Why? I know the truth about it now. The hate. X. Nigga, how long we known each other? What you trying to say? Z. That's what I said, B. Why? It's a racist word, man. Racist, use it. That cop that slapped me called me a nigger, man. She wanted to shoot me. Z. I can't be taking responsibility for history, nigga. Or for white people. X. For real? The fuck is wrong with you? Why? I'm woke to it now. Can't let it go. We got to do better. X. Okay, Malcolm Tito X. I'm going to say nigga whenever I want. Z. I'm kind of insulted, B. I feel like you calling me a racist and shit. Y. The word is racist, man. X. He is calling us racist, B. Y. Y'all just don't get it, man. X. Oh, we get it. You the one lost in the sauce. Y. Word? How's that? X and Z. Cause every nigga is a star. Every nigga is a star. Three. I don't want to be forgotten. I want to be laid to rest. I'm not your intercultural metro card or passport. My name does not prove your bravery. I am not badge. I do not validate your story, song, poem, or friendships. No, I don't forgive killing the oppressor, don't care for taking it back. Never believe no one's listening. I am not prefixed to bulging crotch, lips, nose, style, ass, hair, walk, talk, dancing, step, or fetch. I am not a brand or anecdote. I am not endearment. I am hate. I will never be forgotten. I and Boogeyman, who said you can speak for me? 
So I wrote that poem because of how ubiquitous the word nigga was uh, when I was growing up and how, you know, these days even white boys say it. It's crazy. Um, <laughs> um, Indian boys, Asian boys, you know, girls, like everybody wants to say it. And I know that, um, you know, I used to say it all the time, all the time. Um, but then, you know, I had an experience with an actual racist, a cop, and, you know, hearing the venom in it from that perspective changed my point of view. Um, you know, my aunt's husband, he would hear us, you know, say it, and his, his, his parents are from the South. His father, like, lived in the South, um, you know, pre-civil rights era. So he's, you know, he's acquainted with the kind of racism that a lot of us are very fortunate not to have to have had experience and so you know he was raised with a hatred of that word and so he would hear my friends and I say it and you know would put his foot down immediately I don't want to hear y'all saying that this that you know and so um we thought like oh come on man you old you don't know you're not with it that don't mean that no more this and that you know and so but when I had that experience um, it gave me a different perspective. Um, and that's not to say I'm judging people who I hear say it or who don't say it, because early on in this poem's life, it was only one part, third part. And uh, one of my, you know, mentors and professors, as a matter of fact, the poet Ross Gay, said to me, you do realize there are people who say this word with you know with joy and love in their heart and who don't agree with you where's their side of the story right and so i said okay so i had to expand this poem and make it a little more complex and um you know that's where that came from but interestingly enough i teach and when i teach english 101 and i'm teaching argumentative essays one of the arguments i like to explore is this argument as to who can say the word and so we read articles from people like we read this article by Pierce Morgan, right? This dude, he's a sucker, man, but whatever. And, you know, he's a white guy from England. And we're like, OK, what, you know, what what place does Pierce Morgan have uh, within the culture at all to be able to argue about this word? Right. So if you're going to make an argument, you know, you, you better have a you, know, you better have a dog in the fight. You know what I mean? And so then we read an article from. Talib Kweli, you know, and his article is called Nigga Please, and he's just like, you know, listen, this is the history of the word, you know, we say it, yeah, dot, dot, he said, but if you want to say it, you better recognize there's going to be some consequences, right, and, uh, and then we read another one, um, relatively new, there's two other ones, uh, one by a young woman, and I, I feel horrible, I don't remember her name right now, I apologize, I'm being that asshole patriarch right now and I, I don't mean to be I apologize but the title is very straightforward if you're not black I don't want to hear you saying the n-word period um, so there's all these different arguments to it and so I wanted to introduce that because this is part of you know also our afro diaspora culture everybody within the culture has some version of it and says in Spanish it's very interesting because you know, everyone is, if you're dark, 
you know, everyone is called Negro, Negrito, you know, and it just depends on what the modifiers are, Negrito Lindo, you know, uh, you know, Maldito Negro, which is really bad. Um, and so, yeah, yeah. So, you know, the book is dealing with all of that stuff. So I really hope that if you want to better understand, right, this Latino or this Latinx thing, okay, we are indigenous, we are African, uh, mestizo, definitely, right, European mixed with indigenous, you know, this mix of African and European, yes, there's Asian in there, there's Jewish in there, um, Russian Jewish, right, um, the Latinx community is this big mix Okay, meaning it contains pretty much all of the ethnic groups, almost all the ethnic groups in the world, right? And the Afro-diasporic experience contains so many of the ethnic groups in the world. So there's so much to us. And if you want to just get a foot in the conversation and, and understanding the conversation, you know, please pick up my book, you know, teach it to your students. See where they're at with this. Give them an opportunity to connect with these stories because... um. A lot of them could be going through it themselves, you know. This, If this allows a young, you know, Mexican, Colombian, Ecuadorian, whatever, you know, Trinidadian, Bayesian, you name it, Dominican, Puerto Rican, Cuban, to connect with their either indigenous or African identity. And then what that means within their larger culture, it'll open doors because they'll discover so many wonderful members of their own communities who have been trying to stay connected to their history and who they are and if that can then point to them how the world at large is exploiting them right by making them exploit each other then hey man i think the book the book is doing all of that and i think um I, you know I, I believe it's beneficial this is the book i always wanted to read that's why i wrote it if that makes sense. This is the book I always wanted to read. That's why um, I went ahead and wrote it. Uh, you can find me, you know, Twitter, at The Spoken Mind. You know, if you go to my website, RobertoCarlosGarcia.com, you can send me emails, you know what I mean? Um, if you, you know, if you're going to teach the book and you want to do a Skype session with your classroom, uh, we can do that. You know, get at me. Let's talk. All right. Thank you very much, uh, you know, for having me. And, you know, every day you look in the mirror, love yourself, you know. You are brown, you are black. No, you are more than that. You're indigenous, meaning you're part of a group of people that have existed on this earth for countless, countless, you know, centuries who has had a tremendous experience. One of the things that whiteness does is it turns us into Crayola crayons in a cardboard box. We are more than that. You know, obviously we say we are black or we are brown as a response to whiteness, right? But we are so much more than that. Our, our peoples have done so much more than that. You know, go find out about it. Go find out about it. Mad love. So, Roberto uh, just read 
Elegy for the N-Word. Did I did I quote that right? I mean, I, I have his book right here in my hand. So if you don't have his book, Black Maybe, an Afro lyric, uh, you can go get it. Go to his website, Roberto Carlos Garcia. Uh, um, check it out. I wanted to talk about, yeah, elegy written for the N-word on behalf of the word nigga by a nigga. And something that he and I talked about, you know, prior to this interview that he didn't address that I wanted to address um, is that when you really think about it, nigga is the only racial epithet that everybody, whether they are not black, whether they're white, Asian, um, Latino, Latina, women also, right? Um, um, Indian or whatever they use. Just think about that for a second. Why is it that the word nigga is used by people who aren't black, but they use it in a way to be celebratory and say, hey, yo, my nigga, meaning their friend, their their dear friend, their dear, uh, you know, homeboy, homegirl, whatever. Why? Shout out real quick to Nuestra Palabra and KPFT for this connection. Uh, Leti Lopez, Marlene Trevino, Tony Diaz, Libro Traficante, uh, they set this up. Uh, it was Leti. Leti, you know, we were talking about cultural capital and Afro-Latin cultural capital, and we got into this conversation about it, and Leti had his book, and she was like, here, take it, read it. And from there, we have this episode of the podcast. Um, I want to read something at the beginning of his book um, it's it's in the beginning. It doesn't have a page number, but it's the Roman numerals. It's the Roman numeral six. Um, and, and this is this comes from Kimberly uh, Eason Simmons, navigating the racial terrain, blackness and mixedness in the United States and the Dominican Republic. And she writes, and this is in you know Roberto Carlos's book, uh, Black Maybe, an Afro lyric. Real quick, Black Maybe. If y'all haven't figured out, let me see if y'all have figured out. Have you? You haven't? Yeah. That's a song by Common. I think that was his album, but I know he had that song, Black Maybe. And then he had, I think it was his father was in it as well. He was giving some pros. Go check that song out. It was on the, I think it was on the album B, but it's Black Maybe. Go check that song out by Common. And that's where Roberto, you know, he and I had a conversation about this, you know, prior to, uh, you know, during the interview. And, you know, he, he revealed like that was the inspiration for uh, for the title for the book, so this is what she what she what's what's written in the book and what she said about him and about this about what he's talking about. Here we go. It can be said that while there are differences in processes of racialization throughout the African diaspora, in terms of categories that are used to define people, there are similarities when we consider slavery and racialist thinking. This positionality links people of African descent historically and contemporaneously, mapping a shared historical experience of slavery, systems of inequality, and relationships where racialized identity were created and recreated. And that was Kimberly uh, Easton Simmons. And yo, you know, I, I totally agree with that because that is why we are united. 
But that's also why some people, re, you know, want to reject their blackness is because of how degrading it is. But this is a, a great um, high level um, academic elitist, but ne- but nonetheless, very important way of really understanding the African diaspora throughout the Americas. So we're talking from Canada on down to, uh, to Chile, uh, Argentina. And then we're talking about, you know, the Caribbean. And then we're talking about uh, what this looks like with black Americans and then Afro-Latinos and Latinos who may not know about their ancestry or their or their history. Also, real quick, today is June 19th, 2019. Um, go listen to the gumbo session of the Bootleg Light Jazz. And you can hear more about the history of Juneteenth, um, you know, uh, on, a, on a micro level and you can also find out more about uh, how it came to be a holiday here in uh, in the state of Texas um, so yeah there's that um, Santo Domingo de Guzman the Dominican Republic 1496 and this article once again comes from blackpass.org Santo Domingo de Guzman the capital of the Dominican Republic and the cultural financial and industrial center of the nation was founded in 1496 by Bartholomew Columbus the younger brother of Christopher Columbus situated on the southeastern coast of the island of Hispaniola which is the Dominican which the Dominican Republic shares with Haiti so Haiti's on the left and the Dominicans on the right of that island okay Santo Domingo is considered the oldest European founded city and political capital in the Americas so that means Canada uh, the United States the Caribbean Central and South America that's what they mean by the Americas uh, the city is located on the lowlands near the mouth of the Ozama River, where it empties into the Caribbean Sea or Caribbean Sea. So everybody judges me about how I say it. So whatever. Its estimated population of 3.4 million comprises about 32 percent of the nation's total population. The Spanish colonial influence remains pronounced in this five century old city. The military garrison of Fortaleza Ozama. 1503 may be the oldest colonial building in the New World. The Fortaleza, along with the Catholic Basilica, uh, this is the Cathedral de Santa Maria la Encaracion Primada de America, <laughs> began in 1514. And the Museo Alcazar de Colón, the residence of Columbus's son Diego, comprised historical heart of the city's Zona Colonial. Santo Domingo remained the colonial administrative center through the periods of Spanish, French, English, and Haitian control. When the Dominican Republic claimed national independence from Spain in 1821, it was conquered by Haiti just two months later. In 1844, Santo Domingo was again declared the national capital at the end of the Haitian occupation. Nonetheless, the independent nation was occupied by Spain. 1861, 1864, and twice by the state, by the United States, 1916 to 1924, and then 1965 to 1966. Hint, hint, 1966, 67, that's when Hendrix comes back to the States, plays Monterey. So that's how uh, new and real this history is. I can just imagine, you know, all of this being in the papers, you know, during the time when Hendrix was alive, um, you know, and and, and working and playing um, not only in New York and, and Greenwich Village, but also when he went to London. Yeah. By the way, folks, I'm a big, 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 big Jimi Hendrix head. 
Um, but I'll keep on going with Santo Domingo. Throughout the centuries, the city also kept its original name, except for the period when the nation was ruled by a dictator, Rafael Trujillo, 1936-1961. During Trujillo's dictatorship, he named the capital after himself, Ciudad Trujillo. Reverted, it was then reverted to Santo Domingo after his assassination in 65. Um, besides serving as the colonial and later national capital, Santo Domingo was the principal port for Dominican export crops, including, most importantly, sugar. The city's economy underwent a transformation in the late 20th century, emerging as a major tourist destination as well as a shipping and naval port. Centuries of sugarcane cultivation led to the importation of tens of thousands of enslaved Africans. After the abolition of slavery in 1822, as a result of the Haitian occupation and the subsequent decline of the plantation economy. So we'll get into Haiti and its involvement in the Dominican, which is not always great, but Haiti was the first black nation to gain independence. And if my numbers are correct, 1804, I think that's the number that comes to mind. So then as a result, as I just read, the result the Haitian occupation and the subsequent decline of the plantation economy, many former slaves moved to Santo Domingo. Today, Santo Domingo reflects the racial and ethnic diversity of all of the Dominican Republic. According to official pronouncements, approximately 73% of its inhabitants are officially mixed race. 16% are white and 11% are black. The city has minorities of Chinese and Lebanese descent, as well as significant numbers of recent Jamaican and Puerto Rican immigrants. In the last decade, Santo Domingo has also seen an influx of undocumented Haitian immigrants who may comprise as much as 20% of the city's current population. That was in 2015. Now, I want to read something to you about the Haitian Revolution. Some people may know, some people may not. Haitian Revolution, once again, all my sources coming from blackpaz.org. I like them. I like their, I like what they're writing about. Uh, Haitian Revolution, 1791 to 1804. Um, here it goes. The Haitian Revolution has often been described as the largest and most successful slave rebellion in the Western Hemisphere. Slaves initiated the rebellion in 1791, and by 1803, they had succeeded in ending not just slavery, but French control over the colony. Yes, so in Haiti, they do speak French. The Haitian Revolution, however, was much more complex, consisting of several revolutions going on simultaneously. These revolutions were influenced by the French Revolution of 1789, which would come to represent a new concept of human rights, universal citizenship, and participation in government. In the 18th century, uh, Santo Domingue, as Haiti was then known, right? So Haiti was then known as Santo Domingue, not Domingo, but Domingue, as Haiti was then known, became France's wealthiest overseas colony, largely because of its production of sugar, coffee, indigo, and cotton generated by an enslaved labor force. When the French Revolution broke out, let me stop. Yes, reparations are important. When the French Revolution broke out in 1789, there were five distinct sets of interest groups in the colony. There were white planters, who owned the plantations and the slaves, et petit blanc, which means uh, small whites, who were artisans, shopkeepers, and teachers. Uh, Some of them also owned a few slaves. Together, they numbered 40,000 of the colony's residents. 
Many of the whites on Saint-Domingue began to support an independence movement that began when France imposed steep tariffs on the items imported into the colony. The planters were extremely disenchanted with France because they were forbidden to trade with any other nation. Furthermore, the white population of Saint-Domingue did not have any representation in France. Despite their calls for independence, both the planters and Petit Blanc, right, two sets, remained committed to the institution of slavery. So, right, so we see, we, you know, we, we see a vertical integration, vertical alignment right there, right? The three remaining groups were of African descent, those who were free, those who were slaves, and those who had run away. There were about 30,000 free black people in 1789. So four, year later, four years later, they come up with their freedom. Half of them were mulatto, and often they were wealthier than the Petit Blancs. The slave population was close to half a million, 500,000. The runaway slaves were called Maroons. They had retreated deep into the mountains of Saint-Domingue and lived off of subsistence farming. Haiti had a history of slave rebellions. The slaves were never willing to submit to the status and with their strength in numbers, 10 to 1. Colonial officials and planters did all that was possible to control them. Despite the harshness and cruelty of Saint-Domingue slavery, there were slave rebellions before 1791. One plot involved the poisoning of masters. Inspired by events in France, a number of Haitian-born revolutionary movements emerged simultaneously. They used as their inspiration the French Revolution's Declaration of the Rights of Man. The General Assembly in Paris responded by enacting legislation which gave the various colonies some autonomy at the local level. The legislation, which called for all local proprietors to be active citizens, was both ambiguous and radical. It was interpreted in Saint-Domingue as applying only to the planter class and thus excluded petit blancs from government. Yet it allowed free citizens of color who were substantial property owners to participate. This legislation promulgated into in Paris to keep Saint-Domingue in the colonial empire instead generated a three-sided civil war between the planters, free blacks, and the petite blancs. However, all three groups will be challenged by the enslaved black majority, which was also influenced and inspired by the events in France. Led by former slave Toussaint Louverture, the enslaved would act first, rebelling against the planters on August 21st, 1791. By 1792, they controlled a third of the island. Despite reinforcements from France, the area of the colony held by the rebels grew, as did the violence on both sides. Before the fighting ended, 100,000 of the 500,000 blacks and 24,000 of the 40,000 whites were killed. Nonetheless, the former slaves managed to stave off both the French forces and the British who arrived in 1793 to conquer the colony and who withdrew in 1798 after a series of defeats by Louverture's forces. By 1801, Louverture expanded the revolution beyond Haiti, conquering the neighboring Spanish colony of Santo Domingo, which is present-day Dominican Republic. He abolished slavery in the Spanish-speaking colony and declared himself governor general for life over the entire island of Hispaniola. Right, wrong, you know, wrong or right, you know. Uh, at that moment, the Haitian Revolution had outlasted the French Revolution, which had been its inspiration. Le Napoleon Bonaparte, now the ruler of France, dispatched General Charles Leclerc, 
his brother-in-law and 43,000 French troops to capture Louverture and restore both French and French rule and slavery. Louverture was taken and sent to France where he died in prison in 18, 1803. Jean-Jacques Dessalines, one of Louverture's generals and himself a former slave, led the revolutionaries at the Battle of Vertier on November 18, 1803, where the French forces were defeated. On January 1st, 1804, I've noticed a lot of things happen in January when it comes to nations fighting and stuff like that. But on January 1st, 1804, Desalines declared the nation independent and renamed it Haiti. France became the first nation to recognize its independence. Haiti thus emerged as the first black republic in the world and the second nation in the Western Hemisphere after the United States to win its independence from a European power. And that comes from blackpass.org. So, you know, when I go back to what I read earlier, it can be said that while there are differences in processes of racialization throughout the African diaspora, in terms of categories that are used to define people, there are similarities when we consider slavery and racialist thinking. This positionality links people of African descent historically and contemporaneously, mapping a shared historical experience of slavery, systems of inequality, and relationships where racialized identity were created and recreated. Right? We saw, you know, uh, we read about mulatto and things along those lines. So, like, um, you know, the conversation is happening now about what is Afro. Latin, what is Afro-Latino, what is Afro-Latina, what is Afro-Latinx, what is blackness, what is black American, what's, can I be black if I was, you know, uh, from Haiti? Um, is that a different kind of blackness? I think those conversations are mute, though they, those conversations need to have, right? You know, what I'm saying, you know, I, I, you know, I'm taking a big story and shortening it because we do need to talk about it and we do need to expound upon it. But at the end of the day, the silver lining is this, is that like we were all brought here from the continent, dispersed to different parts of this other continent. And though culturally, linguistically, and in, a, in some other ways, we are different. We are united though. You know, I hate to say it and, and, and it sucks that it has to fucking be by subjugation um, and, and, and systems of oppression and racism, but we are united by that that pain, which, in my opinion, I am seeing it blossom um, into 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 opportunity. You know, I mean, look, you know, my the the title of this podcast is Bootleg Like Jazz. Bootleg Like Jazz is basically seeing the beauty in what was once uh, looked at as 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 evil as 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 um, you know animal, not human, um, three-fifths of a human, um, no dignity. But look now, look at 2019. Things aren't perfect, but whose music is blasting on the radios? Who wants to dress like us? White girls are getting their hairs braided, and they do it because of what, right? Um, look at how we have influenced not only the United States, the Americas, but also look at the world. Hell, look at salsa music. That starts with Cuba, with Africans, former African um, enslaved people who were forced uh, to do what they had to do. Um, you know, Cuba, I mean, uh, um, salsa, bachata, merengue, all that has its roots in blackness. And look at it, man. It's all over the place. You go, I lived in Denver, Colorado. Man, I swear to you, 
People pay whatever it is to go learn how to dance salsa, bachata, merengue better. So I know when we read these things and we talk about these things, these things are depressing, but there needs to be a perspective about it and realizing that, you know, we have come up, even though they tried everything and they're continuing to try everything. Uh, I want to read one more thing. Haiti, you know, I want to read one more thing. I want to read about Haiti and its um, involvement in the Dominican Republic. Uh, this is uh, this is Q here on Bootleg Like Jazz. Uh, I need you to like. I need you to subscribe. I need you to follow um, and leave a comment. You know, tell me what you're thinking. Tell me what you like, what you don't like. Uh, so this comes from BlackPass.org. This this article is titled "Haitian Invasions and Occupation of Santo Domingo, 1801 to 1844." Uh, Louverture. So we just read about him. Troops crossed the border and easily captured and occupied the city of Santo Domingo for the entirety of 1801. So this is three years before Haiti officially is declared independent, right? Louverture did not end slavery in the colony despite abolition being one of his stated goals. In early 1802, Louverture ended the occupation when he was forced to turn his attention back to the western third of the island to confront a newly arrived French military expedition. In 1805, Jean-Jacques Desalines was named Louverture's successor, because remember, Louverture was taken back to France. In 1809, Santo Domingo was returned to Spanish control. In 1822, Haitian President Jean-Pierre Boyer invaded Santo Domingo for the third time with the intent of unifying the island. The subsequent 22-year occupation will result not only in the economic and cultural deterioration of Santo Domingo, but also in a resentment of Haiti by the Dominicans. Agriculture in Santo Domingo was for the most part reduced to sustenance level and exports dramatically declined. The E, so this is with an E, right? The immigration, so immigration with an E means you left your mother, you know, I put that in quotation marks. You left your mother, your home country, and went and took up citizenship and lived in a foreign country, right? Also kind of the word expat, you know, that's kind of the word expat, expatriate, you know? Um, so yeah, the immigration with an E of Dominican landowners led to the redistribution of their property to Haitian officials and the practice of Haitian soldiers commandeering supplies from the countryside only made the situation worse. Culturally, the Haitians took steps to limit the Catholic Church's influence. They confiscated church property, deported the foreign clergy, and severed most remaining ties to Rome. To the pious Catholics who made up the majority of Dominicans, these practices were seen as a great insult and only deepened the hatred for the Haitians. The only positive reform introduced by the Haitians was, was the manumission of the small number of slaves still held in the colony. While sporadic resistance had existed throughout the occupation, it only began to crystallize in 1839 under the leadership of Juan Pablo Duarte. In, 1804, in 1844, Duarte's secret society, La Trinitaria, received their opportunity when Boyer was overthrown in Haiti and his successor, Charles Riviere Herard, was forced to focus on consolidating his rule at home. On February 27, 1844, the rebels drove the last Haitian troops from the capital, securing their independence. And that is how Santo Domingo and the Dominican Republic got their independence. You also heard me read about Haiti um, uh, and how it got its independence. And um, we also talked about, um, you know, Santo Domingo and its history. 
This is Bootleg Like Jazz. I'm your host, Q. Uh, like, subscribe, leave a comment. Uh, I'm running out of time. Got about 15 more minutes. Uh, I want to switch gears, shift gears. I want to talk about France. Um, I've been looking at my numbers on my podcast, and a lot of y'all, especially the ladies, shout out to the ladies, a lot of you like it when I talk about France. So let's dive a little bit more into it. So last time I talked about why I decided to live in France, the influence of Baldwin. Um, I also talked about living with a host family. And I also talked about La Montpossina, dancing salsa, and how I got um, um, good at uh, speaking French and what I did to do that. I want to talk a little bit more about my travels and dive a little deeper. So to this day, so I have a goal. I have a lot of goals. I'm just like everybody else. I have a lot of goals. Um, I have a goal. Um, by the time I reach a certain age, I want to visit a certain amount of countries. I've been to about 10, 11 countries. So I've been to Canada. I've been to Jamaica. And I've been to Jamaica before you need a passport, right? So that was before Jamaica. So before, this was what, 15 years ago? I was in high school when I went to Jamaica. I went to Jamaica twice. At that time, you could go to Jamaica, Mexico, and a few other places without a passport. So I went to Canada, Jamaica. I've been to Sweden. I've been to England. I've been to the Netherlands, I've been to Germany, I've been to Switzerland, I've been to France, I've been to Italy, and I've been to Lebanon. I think there's one other I keep think, keep missing or whatever. Uh, Lebanon was interesting. I've been to, I went to Beirut and Lebanon, I went there twice. Actually, um, you know, I have a lot of interesting stories. Uh, cool thing about Beirut, Lebanon, they have these things called le service. Um, that's how you say it in French. They So <laughs> the Lebanese are funny for, for something. The Lebanese... So many people outside of the United States of America speak multiple languages, right? So it's not, you know, so, you know, there's, there's people that speak six languages or whatever, you know, before they hit 18, maybe three before they hit 18. But in Lebanon, it's true. They, and, and, and the running joke is that they speak all three of them in one sentence. They say, Kifak, como sa va, how are you? So Kifak is Arabic. Um, and I may not be saying it right, but that's Arabic. So they speak Arabic. Um, they also speak French. And then they also speak English as well. Um, so I had a I had a really good time. So like service, you know, is like the is like the Lebanese version of Uber and Lyft, except super cheap. And you always will be in a car with people you don't know because they're going to because it's cheap. They need to get multiple people in there to make profit. Right. Um, and so, you know, you could be in a, you know, a old school looking Mercedes Benz. I mean, you know, those old, old, old school ones, um, you know, with other people you don't even know. But, you know, you guys, you know, you know, getting a, a deal on on, on a, a ride share. So, you know, you can't really complain. Um, the food was good. Uh, the city is still going through construction. It was really cool being in Beirut and hearing the uh, Islamic prayers you know, throughout the day, you know, that, that alone made me stop and just say, yo, this is the Middle East kid. <laughs> and like Beirut, Lebanon, like if I had to, um, compare Beirut, right? Not the country of Lebanon, but the city of Beirut. If I had to compare it to an American city, it would have to be a city in Cali because when you go there, you're gonna see you're gonna see women veiled, but then you're gonna see women, um, you know, in mini skirts. You're gonna see Camaros and Dodge Challengers. You're gonna see all these buff <laughs> Lebanese dudes at the beach with the glasses on and the you know and the jean shorts that are cut at the edge and afraid. And you're just like, wow, American culture really, really 
has been used or has really like been disseminated all over the world, right? And that's that's another big thing that um, somebody faces when they travel internationally is they really are confronted with how much of American, how much of the United States of American culture has been disseminated throughout the throughout the world. That is when you know that you're traveling. That is when you know that. Uh, that's when you have a little bit better understanding, different understanding, however you want to categorize it, about the United States of America. When you start to go to countries and they know the songs that you've been singing for years and you can't even speak to them in English, but they know these songs, right? Or they got these whips and these cars, but or this or or but that, you know? Um, so, yeah. Uh, so, Beirut was great. I was there for an internship. So, I got to live in France twice. So I got to live in France once, and both times I was, you know, I was in school. It was all school related. So the first time was a study abroad program, four year. I lived with the French family. Told you guys about that. Go listen to that episode. A black guy l'étranger. That translates to black abroad, basically. Um, the second time I was an exchange student, and so I was, you know, I had my own. I had a, a a dorm, a student dorm. I didn't share anything with anybody, but it was small. Um, it was a twin size bed. I had a mini fridge for a fridge, no TV. My bathroom was a handicapped bathroom. Um, I had two hot plates for stove and I had a shelf, three, a three row shelf to put all my dry goods and whatever else. And then a little desk and then a little small table. And that was it. I did have a big ass patio. Like that patio was huge. I have a photo of it. I probably posted on social media, it was maybe you know, football. It was maybe a basketball goal, maybe 15 feet long and maybe eight feet wide. You know, definitely had parties there, people over to enjoy that. Um, uh, I want to talk about the bathroom. So they use central heating in in, in Europe. It, let's be real, AC does not exist in Europe like it does here. Okay. And that's that's one of the main things Europeans always say, especially when they come to Texas. It's like, damn, why why everywhere I go is so cold, right? When you go to Europe, it's not like that, you know? It'll be hot outside, but once you go in, it's probably going to still be hot. Or maybe it'll be a little cool, but it's not going to be like Antarctica cold like we blast ACs here in Texas and other parts of the states. But... Um, with that said, you know, um, I had to use, so like uh, when I would do laundry to save money on drying clothes, th- in my apartment, in my bathroom actually, um, and then in my apartment, you know, there was a, uh, a heater, you know, kind of old school heater, you know, you could put your clothes on there and dry your clothes. And so that's what I had to do to survive. Um, and that's, and so it was during that exchange, being an exchange student that year that I went to Beirut. Um, and then uh, the next, then the year after that, I went back the second time, and that's when I had all those, um, um, you know, experiences or whatever. Um, the first time I went, we were so it was an internship. I told you, so I was working on a video game that could be played on a smartphone, right? And we went to Beirut to um, collaborate with um, fine arts students at Alba, which is the uh, fine arts. Uh, university, uh, uh, sorry, one fine arts university 
in Beirut. It was called Alba, so you can look it up. And we collaborated with them. And but that was all work, you know. We got to have some food, eat, I mean, eat some good food, see some stuff. But it was a lot of work and things like that. So I went back the second time to have fun. And and you know, that first time I made friends. So you know, that second time, you know, you know, I was by myself, but. You know, I was meeting, you know, the family members of the friends I had seen the year before and seeing other parts of the city I hadn't seen before. Other places I traveled to while I lived in France that first time, you know, um, and while I lived in France, rather, you know, I, I traveled to Amsterdam, uh, traveled to Switzerland, Lausanne. Uh, Switzerland is, listen, if you like adventure, adventure sports, being outdoors, go to Switzerland. Um, go. Just go. There's so much to do there. Um, London, the thing I love about London, London had some mad diversity, bro. Mad diversity. I remember getting off of the plane and the people I, w- I was with, we were go, um, you know, we were going, just walking around trying to find food. And, you know, for me, it was the first time I saw this, man. There's a skate park and there's black and, and white kids skateboarding together, having fun. I hadn't seen that before. You know, that this is, you know, I still come from Houston, Texas. Yeah, Texas is, Houston is one of the most diverse cities, but a lot of this diversity, people stay in their own pockets, stay in their own corners, right? Rarely, not rarely, but uh, people stay in their pockets. People do intermingle here in Houston, but it's not like you would think it is being that Houston is one of the most diverse cities in the United States, right? But London, for me, I saw that. Um, um, The women who were veiled, were were beautiful, man. They were they, you know, they they were bling blinging on their veils, man. They had, you know, so just imagine, you know, a Muslim woman veiled from head to toe, but now she's sixteen or she's twenty five, and she's wearing Jordans and you, and underneath, and she has gold lady, and she has like this gold bracelet covering the mouth part of her veil, like. That was some cool shit to see in London, man. It was like they were taking their, um, you know, their their fervent religious beliefs and pimping it out and, and making it urban, making it relevant, making it cool. And that was awesome to see, man. Um, obviously, London didn't have great food, you know, well, whatever. But the pubs and, and beers and, and all that other stuff was, was, was cool. It was a great time, great experience. The museums were good. Like I said, I'm a big Hendrix fan. You know where I had to go, right? Where did I have to go? Had to go to the Royal Albert Hall uh, and, li- and and check that place out. Man, that place was huge, beautiful. It was just cool just kind of be there and be like, this is where Hendrix played, man. This is where he jammed. Um, this is, you know, he probably went through that door, you know, this, that, and the other. So, it was, it, you know, it was just a cool experience. I did get to travel a lot in France. Um, uh, I got to travel to Strasbourg and Colmar, which is on the eastern side, touching Germany. That's where you'll find other... Um, models and replicas of the Statue of Liberty because the Statue of Liberty is a French gift from France. So in Colmar, there's a Statue of Liberty and I think there's another one in Strasbourg. But I know for a fact in Paris, there's another Statue of Liberty. So where is it? I forget the bridge, but I know where I've seen it from. So if you go to the top of the Eiffel Tower and you go, let me see if I can explain it to you the right way. If you go opposite, so if you go to the top of the Eiffel Tower, and you go and you see the Louvre, if you go like directly opposite of where you saw the Louvre at, you're gonna go see a bridge. And in order to see the Statue of Liberty from there, you're gonna have to use the, uh, the what, I don't know what those things are called. They're kind of like, 
um, binoculars, but they're like this big silver plated thing or whatever. And if you zoom down, you'll see another Statue of Liberty over there. So there's, so there's two, and I think there's two Statue of Liberties in France and three in the world, right? Um, and, and one other is in Colmar. Um, I also got to go to Dijon. I got to go to Nice, Aix-en-Provence. I got to go to Aix. I got to go to uh, uh, Cannes, where they do the Cannes Film Festival. Got to go up to the north in Normandy, where, um, you know, all, all the World War stuff, uh, you know, took place. And D-Day and so forth. And, you know, that was an emotional time doing that. I cried. I actually found somebody with my last name. I actually, and I think I have a photo of it. I actually found somebody's tombstone whose last name was Quillen. I need to follow up on it. But it was emotional because one thing, if, if you don't, if you haven't been there, you don't know this. That area where the cemetery of those soldiers and where, you know, the beach where they actually land, all of that is American territory. They have border agents, custom agents right there. And you, I, I don't know if we had to show our passport or not. I can't remember that, but it was like, it, it was a process to like go there. And there is a big, huge ass seal that says the United States of America territory, whatever. And so you go and see that. I mean, you know, the, the cemetery is depressing, but it, it goes on for, I mean, it, it just goes on as far as the eye can see. And you also can go to where the actual fighting was at, the barracks and stuff and, and, and where the soldiers were hiding out. And, and also you see, you see the holes in the ground made by the bombs. They're still there. Like the whole, that whole area is, is just destroyed. And, you know, they, they preserved it in terms of making it a museum and something to see, but there are still huge holes in the ground from the bombs. And you still got those, um, you know, those installations that um, the soldiers were in shooting out at us into the ocean. You can still get into it and look through it and, and things like that. It was really interesting. Um, um, and then also, you know, in my time, I got to travel to Italy. Uh, great food, great experiences there. Um, uh, museums were amazing. Got to see the David. Um, got to eat some good gelato. Um, got to go to um, Florence in Italy. And if you know anything about Florence, you know that its name in Italian it's Firenze. It's spelled F-I-R-E-N-Z-E. -E. And I understand why the first four letters are fire because if you go to Florence in the summer, it is hot like Texas. And here's the only difference. They do not have central AC in Italy as well. <laughs> hey, uh, I'm your host, Q, and you've been listening to Bootleg Like Jazz. Uh, thank you. Shout out to Roberto Carlos Garcia. Go buy his book, Black Maybe, an Afro Lyric. Go support his uh, publishing company. Go support him. He's on uh, RobertoCarlosGarcia.com. Uh, shout out to Nuestra Palabra and KPFT for this opportunity. Shout out to all my to all the Quillins, INs, ENs, ANs. We're going to still include you all and the ones with S's on it. Um, uh, subscribe, like, share. We got some great content still coming up. Today's June 19th. 2019 Juneteenth go listen to my gumbo session um, I talk about the history of Juneteenth so you can be um, adept and, and up to date about that and if you're an educator you can even use that 
you know, in a summer school class or in classes to come. Uh, show some love. This is Bootleg Like Jazz. I'm out. Hey, uh, this is Q. You listen to Bootleg Like Jazz. Like, subscribe, follow. I'm also on uh, YouTube. Um, Bootleg Like Jazz on YouTube. You can find me on my website, bootleglikejazz.com. Um, also, I'm on uh, iTunes, uh, SoundCloud, and Spotify under Bootleg Like Jazz. Like, subscribe, follow, show some love.